It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Monday, July the 17th, 2016. Hope everybody's doing well. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. com is my personal website. You can check out the show also on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasting fix out there. Um, All-Star break is over, a little bit of rest this week. Back into it, three-game series of the Phillies is over. Mets basically do the minimum of what you would expect and probably should have swept. That's a whole other story. And we're just uh, probably an hour out of uh, watching Jacob deGrom almost pitch a no-hitter, which it was an odd situation because you see the hit earlier in the game by the uh, the pitcher Efron, and you're like, oh, well, you know, you know, base hit. And he was gritty deGrom today, uh, you know, there's some rockets right at players. It wasn't like he was dominant, but when he needed to get the outs that he needed, he, he went out and did it. And I think he started to pitch better as the game went on, believe it or not. And, and he gets a complete game. Who? Wow, look at that! A complete game in in this day and age. And his arm didn't fall off. I think we'll be uh, I think we'll be okay. But anyway, we have a great we have a really good show I think for you tonight. Uh, Bob Clappish of the Record, uh, Fox Sports, uh, covered the Mets back in the '80s. Will be joining joining me. Um, to talk about Doc and Daryl, the ESPN 30 for 30. So you'll hear from Bob. Uh, you'll hear from Wally Mackman, AAA manager for the Mets, Las Vegas 51's uh, contributor to the show, uh, guest contribution today. My buddy Jim Mojo Morrison, who does the game day for the Charlotte Knights, was able to catch up with Wally since the uh, AAA All-Star game was down in Charlotte. So uh, Wally Backman was the manager for the uh, Pacific Coast League, who, uh, who lost 4-2. to two. Uh, Mets had three representatives in that ball game. So you'll hear actually from Wally Backman. So Jim had a chance to catch up with Wally. And then Jim will come on later on and we'll chat a little bit about the All-Star game, uh, what he saw out there from some of the Mets prospects. And uh, we'll chat a little bit about this Mets team uh, to wrap up the show. So a lot to, to go up on. By the way, on the one-hitter by Jacob DeGrand, this this site is great, really great. Uh, NoNoHitters.com is a site that basically tracks you – know, Teams that don't have no hitters, or the Mets didn't have a no hitter until uh, Johan Santana, and within minutes of Jacob Degrom completing the one hitter today, they updated their page, which has the Mets. It's Mets.NoNoHitters.com/slash/onehitters/backslash. So it should be backslash. So basically, Mets.NoNoHitters.com/backslash/onehitters. Backslash. You just basically Google Mets one hitters and you'll you'll come up with it. But if you go to nonohitters.com, you'll see a list of every pitcher who threw a one hitter for the Mets. There's 38 according to this, including two range short one hitters by Tom Glavin and John Main in 2007. I forgot about those, but that was odd. There was a couple of games that got range short when the Mets basically won in five innings. So. Um, so Jacob Degrom within minutes. So this guy must have been like watching the game and, and ready to put that up couple of things before we get into, uh, and I'm going to tell you why I think the more I look at it, Jacob deGrom is really uh, the one Mets pitcher that I, I personally would hand the ball to in a big spot. I'll get into that in a minute. But here's some things I didn't realize, and it'll go into the fanessentials.net contest that we do where we give you a free month. If you, if you answer on Twitter, go to you know Twitter, follow me at Mike Silva Media. If you answer on Twitter, my question to get you a free month. R.A. Dickey has three one-hitters for the Mets. I knew that, but you know, you're, until you really look at it on paper, you're like, wow, he had back-to-back one-hitters back in 2012. 
and he had a one hitter two years earlier against the Phillies with Cole Hamels broke it up. I remember that. That's a, you know, that's a that's a heartbreaker there. Um, thank you, Ari Dickey, because that's why you have Noah Syndergaard. That's why you have Travis Darno. That's why uh, you might even get another player out of that, Wilmer Bucera out, out of that, who's uh, down in the minor leagues playing pretty well. Uh, Matt Harvey and Bobby Parnell with the one-hitter back in 2013. But let me throw you some guys that you may not realize had one-hitters for the Mets. And I'm going to throw out the ones that were combined. You guys probably remember Aaron Heilman. Jonathan Neese had one in 2010 against the Padres. Uh, Tom Glavin, you probably remember the Kit Pillow hit back in uh, 2004. Steve Traxel had a couple of them. He had one against the Colorado Rockies in 2003. He had one against the Anaheim Angels earlier that year where uh, David Eckstein broke it up in the sixth. Sean Estes had a one-hitter where Eric Young, not junior, Eric Young senior, had a hit. Uh, We all know about the playoff one with Bobby Jones. Here's one I'm going to throw at you, and this will probably be my question. Who is the obscure Mets pitcher? You know, there's Matlock and there's Seaver and Gentry's on this list and Ryan. But let me give you the obscure Mets pitcher. And I actually remember watching the end of this game, coming home from, it must have been high school, because in September of 91, it was a doubleheader that day. The Mets were playing the Expos in a doubleheader in 1991. Pete Shark threw a one-hitter and a 9 nothing Mets win. Kenny Williams, who would go on to be the general manager of the White Sox. Kenny Williams with a single in the fifth inning. So Pete Shorick, the obscure Met with a one-hitter. Jacob DeGrom joins the illustrious list, and who knows, maybe Johan Santana will get company. Maybe a Jacob DeGrom or Noah Syndergaard or Harvey will get a no-hitter. I just think it's going to be so hard because of the pitch counts and with the amount of strikeouts these guys get, it's not going to be easy for them to... Uh, to accomplish what Santana did that night, I think it's not going to be easy for anybody this day and age with the way that they manage pitchers, but, but I digress on that. So anyway, interesting stuff. So the Mets take two out of three from the Phillies. Uh, the second half is, is now underway, and, and now it's time to put the big boy pants on, and now it's time for me to see the Mets start to take off. Now, as we were recording this, the Nationals are in extra innings with the Pirates, so I don't know if the Mets, depending on when this when we're done here, I don't know if the Mets are going to gain any ground here on the Nationals. I think the division's gone. So, um, and in the Nationals have a couple of runners on with nobody on the bottom of the 10th against the Pirates. So the, in a good case scenario, the Mets will probably gain another, if the Nationals win another game on the Pirates in the uh, the wild card race. Bad is that they, they just don't seem to be able to make a dent on the Nationals. And I think the division's gone. I think the Nationals beating the Mets at home, they're going to take off from here. And um, I think from day one, they've become better prepared since spring training to win this division and compete to win this division than the Mets, who seem to be playing just to make the playoffs. Um, The Marlins are ahead of the Cardinals. They just took a uh, 5-3 lead, so we'll see if the Mets jump ahead of the Marlins for the second wild card spot, and the Dodgers are losing. But anyway, you know, this is where you start to watch some of the, the scoreboard. And um, the Mets have to show me something. I don't know if this is overstating it, but Mike Puma had an article during the All-Star break where basically Sandy Alderson gave the blueprint to a playoff berth. And Sandy, in his usual lawyerly way, gives you a lot of information, but you have to read through it. I mean, he, he didn't say anything that I think none of us who watch the team every day don't know where, you know, for them to win, they have to continue to get the starting pitching that they've been getting. They need the bullpen to be where it's been. They need to start hitting more. We all know that. They need to really hit more runners in scoring position. They've historically been bad. 
And uh, if they had done better in that sense, they probably would be, you know, comfortably in the wild card and, and maybe right there with the Nationals. But anyway, uh, you know, these are all obvious things that Sandy said. But the thing that Sandy Alderson said, he still expects the Mets to be a playoff team. And that's with the current roster. See, Sandy said this three days ago. Sandy said this three days ago that knowing that Matt Harvey would not be on this roster and knowing that Lucas Dude is still a week away from baseball activity and maybe not going to be much of a contributor this year. Sandy Alderson said this knowing that David Wright's out for the year and probably, you know, if you're a betting man, probably not coming back anytime soon, maybe not even next year, maybe not ever. So Sandy Alderson said all of this. Despite the fact that the Mets have had some challenges this year, you know, Sandy Olson is not looking at this as well. He'll try. Let's go out there and see what happens. And he's not using any of the obstacles that the Mets have had this year as an excuse, as a crutch. And which is amazing to me that none of you picked up on this because all I see, and I know it's Twitter and it's not necessarily, Twitter is not necessarily a, a synopsis of every Mets fan, but I see a lot of excuses. And look, I know on Twitter I break chops a little bit, and that's kind of the outlet for me when I'm frustrated watching the game to to spout out emotional things that sometimes, you know, nothing inappropriate, but sometimes you're not always – you're thinking more like a fan sometimes there than just as an independent uh, individual who's trying to cover this team in the way that I cover the team uh, from afar, you know, talk show sense uh, covering the team. You guys all tell me about how this team has been decimated by injuries. And I posed the question on you know the last day of the season, if you're sitting around and watching the Miami Marlins and the Dodgers or the Cardinals and the Marlins or the Cardinals and the Dodgers or the Pirates, whatever team it is, and not the Mets playing in the wild card game. Because right now I feel like the Mets are just not a team that's going to be able to make up this deficit on the Nationals. I don't think the Nationals are going to allow it. I don't think the Nationals are going to go into any long losing streaks. How are you going to feel? Are you going to feel good? And if that's the case, are you still comfortable with the leadership that this 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 uh, not only the performance of the front office, but specifically, do you feel good about how the field staff has done this year? And right away, I got bam. Right away, oh, you know, well, you know, it's not their fault that Harvey got uh, uh, thoracic outlet syndrome, and uh, it's not their fault that they've been decimated by injuries, and it's not their fault that Wright went down with uh, uh, with with uh, a herniated disc. And I'm saying to my, and it's not their fault that Conforto. You know, didn't hit and uh, was sent down, which, by the way, you'll hear, uh, you know, might be there, especially when you listen to what Wally Backman says in a little bit about Conforto. It is probably the coaching staff's fault because I think they, they got Conforto out of his game. But but again, I digress. So I'm listening to this and I'm saying to myself, boy, you guys are already preparing yourself to not make the playoffs. You can't handle this, can you? To me, there's no excuse. I still look at the Cardinals and the Pirates and the Marlins, and even the Dodgers. And I say, why can't the Mets, even with the roster constituted, I'm going to play this as if dude is not coming back. Certainly we know Harvey's not coming back. I'm not even going to go out there and assume that Sandy Alderson is going to acquire an arm because some of the relievers that I've heard thrown out there, the Axfords, the Butchers, the Hands, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to, it depends on what they want for them. But these, none of these guys are difference makers. You're not bringing in Chapman or, or Aldous Chapman or Andrew Miller or a guy like that. That doesn't that, that the names you're hearing. So I'm assuming that this roster, as is, is what's going to be for the rest of the season. I still think they should make the playoffs. Now, I don't know what those other teams are going to do. That could change. But as of now, and I'm not saying anything about the injuries because I'm saying to myself, 
The Mets are not experiencing this rash of injuries. Sure, they've been a little bit unlucky, but they're not decimated. If you told me in spring training Conforto wouldn't hit and Harvey would go down and you'd still get another you know, two months of injuries from Darno and Wright would be out for the same amount of time as it was last year, would I, would I come out of spring training feeling good about them? No, but I wouldn't necessarily say – you know, Harvey, I might say that because you know, starting pitching, but I wouldn't say, oh, my God, this team can't make the playoffs because you've got two wild cards now. And I'm just I'm baffled by why everybody thinks this team is decimated by injuries. James Loney's done a very good job. He's at a 107 OPS plus. He's got an OPS of 775. He's playing, I don't want to say perfect defense, because I think the scoops he's better than sometimes at his range, but he's playing good defense, and he's providing the contact they need. Maybe not the power. He's got four home runs, but not Duda. I'm not asking him to be Duda, but he's certainly not a huge downgrade. And based on what Duda was performing before the injury, he's been better. He's been better. Conforto was a below-league average hitter. He was horrible for two months. So you were playing with a, with a, with a below-league average player. Uh, you know, certainly, Deanza has been, has been poor, but Juan Lagares has done okay. So if you're trading off Conforto for Lagares, there's really there's not much of a drop-off. If anything, he's been better, especially on the defensive side. Cespedes has been Cespedes. You know, Walker and Cabrera and Granderson have had their ups and downs, but they're, they're solid hitters. Yeah, the catching situation, you had a huge drop-off offensively with Plowecki and Rene Rivera. But listen, you, you had to prepare for Darno being out. He's always been out. Your bench is okay. And, and look, the David Wright thing, here's the deal. Flores and Reyes will not be any worse than what you were going to get out of Wright. If anything, they're going to be better. They're going to be better defensively. You know, Reyes is going to add another element with speed. I don't think Reyes is done. I never thought that. I think Reyes needs to be in the right situation. I don't think Reyes is the same player he was five years ago, or certainly not ten years ago, but Reyes is not done. He's, he's going to help them, and he hasn't been bad at third base. The pitching staff, they've used six starters this year. Guess how many starters typically you need to get through a season? Eight to ten. That's any team. Oh, you're going to say, no, Mike, that's not true. By the way, last year the Kansas City Royals won the championship. They needed ten starters to get through the year. Now, not everybody's going to get five, ten, fifteen starts. You can have onesies, twosies, but they need them whether it be a doubleheader, rainouts, injuries, rest, whatever it may be. The Yankees in 2009 won a championship. They used nine starters. You, you, you want me to keep going deeper? The 1998 Yankees won 114 games, needed 10 starters to get through the year. The 86 Mets, you want to hit home? Needed nine starters. The Mets have used six. And maybe Wheeler comes back, makes it seven. But if everybody stays healthy the rest of the year and they don't go crazy with the rest, guess what? Mets aren't going to need more than six starters. That's a healthy team. That's a healthy pitching staff. Again, it's it's not even August 1st, so there could be. And I think the Mets will wind up getting seven, eight starters. You might get a Wheeler start, maybe Gil Martin at some point. Maybe they go out and get some. I don't know. But that's a healthy team. Guys, this is a team that's had challenges. It's not that That's baseball. What did you expect? You expect it because they went to the World Series and they had a great 12 weeks and everything fell their way after August 1st after Cespedes? You expected that to happen this year? I told you, the first podcast that I did here, I told you that wasn't going to happen. What do you think? You think everyone's going to roll over? The Phillies have young players that are trying to make it in baseball. They're not going to sit around and watch the Mets run all over them. The same thing for the Braves. I heard this week, Sal Akata on WOR. Well, you know, the Mets got an easy schedule if you get past this, this stretch of 30-something games. You got teams like the Phillies, the Braves, the Reds, the Twins. Guys, nothing is given. Nothing is easy. 
They played the Braves like seven times a couple of weeks ago. They played horribly against them. They won two games or three games, whatever it was. That's unacceptable, but that, you know, there's, that's what this baseball is about. No one's going to roll over for them. They're the National League champs, and I'll tell you what. Hernandez said it today. Hernandez said it today. They did not come into the season prepared to play. I'm not saying they can't even come prepared to compete and win. They came unprepared to start the season. The way they went about the rest, the pitchers, the whole program in spring training. I don't know whose idea it was, if it was Collins, it was Worthen. It was certainly probably a combination of the front office and those three. They did a bad job. So if the Mets don't make the playoffs, if Sandy Alderson says today, I still expect us to be a playoff team, and then they don't make it, then what does that leave the manager? Who, who takes the fall? What are you going to walk away and say, eh, yeah, no Harvey. Uh, you know, they, they, we got off to a, a tough start with the Grom and Familia. You know, they had this, the bone spurs with Mats and, and Syndergaard, which, by the way, everybody, I mean, pitchers have had bone spurs since the, the age of time. They just don't report it like they do today. So I don't want to hear about that either. Oh, we lost Duda, lost right. That's basically lose players. Every team goes through this. If that's the mindset, then you know what? Sandy shouldn't say I expect to make the playoffs. He should say playoffs would be a nice way to this season to cap. You're not saying that. And I'm not saying that. And if you're saying that, you're thinking like a loser. And you really can't think like a loser because that's not how teams that want to win and compete and win championships and win and, win and sustain winning think. That's a loser talk. That's a loser mindset. And anybody – and there's more than one of you out there talking like that. Reevaluate because you're talking like a loser. Or maybe you just don't want to admit that this team may be not as good as you thought. I know that's a hard thing to think. I think there's a lot here. And if they don't win this year, that doesn't mean that they're done, the window's closed. But there's a lot of things you got to look at. And this coaching staff and how they go about preparing this team and how they go about managing these personalities and holding them accountable. Nobody ever gets held accountable for do- making a mistake. Darno sloppy on the base pit. Nothing happens. Diazza doesn't run out of bunt. Nothing happens. Granderson throws to the wrong base. Nothing happens. I'm not saying you have to be Gil Hodges and walk out like Cleon Jones and take him out of the game, but come on, guys. Show some emotion. Show some fire. You know, maybe Terry does it in, in the locker room. I don't know. To me, Terry still is scarred from his days in Anaheim when he was looked at as a lunatic. And I don't think he's ever held this team accountable. I don't think he's a tough – I think he's a fake tough guy. I don't. I think he's a soft manager. He's never shown me the one thing you thought you were going to get when you got Terry Collins back in 2010. This guy's really going to have a disciplined club that plays hard, plays fundamental, and is not, he's not going to take any of their nonsense. The antithesis of some of the nonsense you saw under Willie Randolph and Jerry Manuel, I haven't seen it in good years and bad. He almost is a caretaker to me. He's always been that. He was supposed to be that until they got good. He hasn't changed. And if he didn't have such good personalities in his clubhouse, I think it would be worse. He's fortunate he's had David Wright and that the young pitchers are good guys and they're not, you know, they're serious about their profession. But there's some clowns in that locker room. So to me, here's the deal. If you're talking about, oh, this team, this team is not injured. That's a false statement. This team is, spec- the general manager expects this team to make the playoffs. And I'll tell you what. You know, Jacob DeGrom, not because he pitched a one-hitter today. It's coincidence, but he continues to show me that he could win with less than his best stuff. He showed it to you in Game 5 against the Dodgers last year. He didn't have great stuff against the Cubs in Game 3, and he grinded that out. Wasn't good in the World Series. Would have liked to see him get another shot if they had made it to uh, 
a sixth or a seventh game. But he could win without his best stuff, and that's the guy you want to hand the ball to. Syndergaard, oh, you know, all of a sudden he's got bone spurs. Matt, I think, is still trying to figure out. The, you know, he's still trying to learn. He's young. He, hasn't had, he had five starts at the big league last year. This is essentially his first season. Harvey, I think, sometimes has a glass jaw. Not DeGrom. DeGrom has shown you he can compete and win and be effective without his best stuff. Now he's starting to get his stuff back. That, to me, is the guy. You know, at the beginning of the year, they had that poll. Who's the Mets pitcher? That's going to have the best career. And it's so hard for me to answer that because I don't know. You could go any which way. The Grom's the guy. You know why the Grom's the guy? Because he's going to be able to withstand the pain. He's going to try to stay on a field. He's going to win and compete and be good when he doesn't have his best stuff. Those other guys, I'm not so sure yet. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When I return, uh, Bob Clappish of the record of FoxSports.com. We're going to be talking about the documentary that maybe you saw this week on ESPN, the 30 for 30, Doc and Daryl, about Daryl Strawberry and Doc Gooden. Uh, later on, you'll hear from Wally Backman, a contributor to the show, Jim Mojo Morrison, game, game day operations for the Charlotte Knights. I had a chance to catch up with Wally, and then Jim will join us after that and, uh, and chat a little bit about the Mets and the AAA All-Star game and Backman and what have you. So you're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can always check us out all the time, live on replay, really just on replay, I shouldn't say live at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silvermedia, MikeSilvermedia.com if you want to send me a personal note. We'll be right back. Dwight Gooden takes over on the mound. So he becomes the youngest man ever to play in the All-Star game, 19, two years out of high school. One of the brilliant young Met pitchers leads the majors in strikeouts at the All-Star break. 2-2 pitch to Parrish. Got him swinging. So Dwight Gooden leading the bigs in strikeouts. Strikes Parrish out. As it crossed the plate, not in the catcher's glove. And he strikes him out. So the last five American leaguers have gone down on strikes. Two balls, two strikes on Al Davis of Seattle. And good strikes out the side. Right good. Two years out of high school. Two years ago in Tampa, Florida, and at the age of 19, comes into the All-Star game and strikes out the side. And he hit it. There it is. Base hit left field. Here comes Heap around second. There will be no throw to the plate. And Strawberry has his first Major League base hit. He'll always remember this one. Warming up their third pitcher. Well hit to left center field. Out of here. Daryl Strawberry's first Major League home run. Oh, Strawberry right. goes to the opposite power alley. Strawberry is up facing Nepper. It is now a four to one ball game. Strawberry hits it high in the air to right. Fast to the wall. It's gone. The score is tied. High drive into deep right field. Evans back at the Talking Mets, Mike Silva here, and I'm happy to have with me Bob Clappish. You guys know Bob from The Record, also Fox Sports, at Bob Clapp on Twitter. And Bob, before we uh, start off, how's your arm feeling? I heard you got the W in the uh, New York Riders versus <laughs> Boston Riders game. Are you are you going on DL? No Tommy John, no uh, dead arm, none of that stuff, right? 
No, no, no. I don't, I don't have to worry about that stuff. I don't throw as hard as guard, so I don't ever have to worry about blowing out the ligaments in my elbow. Our feels great. Had a fun time yesterday playing ball. It's always a treat. We get the uh, stadium once a year. We get Fenway once a year. So we have a home-and-home home series against the Boston Raiders. And, you know, I've been playing baseball a long time in my life, and it's still a great, great thrill to be able to pitch on a major league mound. It was, it was a lot of fun. And I was following you on Twitter while you were at the, I believe it was the All-Star game, and uh, you and Bobby Bonilla breaking bread, making peace. You know, there's there's hope for everybody, right? I mean, there's got to be – it means that there's a possibility of, of hope, of uh, peace in the Middle East. If Bobby Bo and I can get along, I mean, then anybody can. I mean, I mean, we were mortal enemies in the 90s. I mean, literally ready to come to blows that day in the clubhouse back in 93. Uh but, you know, time passes. You know, we both made mistakes that day. We both wish we could have done things differently. And, you know, Bobby's a different person now than he was back then. I've grown up a lot. And we just happened to bump into each other. And he extended his hand and said, hey, Bob, how you doing? And I said, Bobby, nice to see you. We shook hands. And that was it. You know, I mean, it's uh, we finally moved on from that ugly chapter in our past. Of course, I uh, would meet Bob Clappish, and if you guys watched the 30 for 30 about Dal Strawberry and Doc Gooden, uh, you saw Bob quite a bit. Uh, Bob, getting over to that, and that's the reason why I wanted to talk to you. Um, you know, I grew up as a Mets fan watching that team in the 80s as a young man, and, and you covered it. So, I mean, you have a much better perspective of that team than just a young boy watching it from the outside. But what did you think of the portrayal of that period, those two guys? How do you think the uh, documentary, how well did the documentary do? in uh, giving the viewer an idea of that period of those two players? Uh, Mike, I thought it was it was tremendous. You know, I had great curiosity as to how the final product would turn out. Um, they spent almost four hours in my house interviewing me that day, so I obviously I knew what direction they were going in with the piece. Um, but I did not know how it ultimately, you know, the, the finished product would look until I saw it the other night. And, it was deeply, deeply moving. And, I mean, first of all, they captured the, the era very well. You know, the sense of history was accurate. Uh, you know, the, the interviews were expensive, expansive and extensive. We talked to a lot of the relevant people, including Keith. And the time spent between Daryl and Doc was, was incredibly powerful, the two of them face-to-face, uh, especially in that diner. I mean, I think that's what really made this documentary so effective. And that was really a nice touch just to put them in a – in a setting where it was just the two of them, nobody to moderate, no reporters there to, to, uh, to direct the questions or direct the conversation, just the two of them sharing history, sharing their bond. And, you know, you see in some senses they love each other now. In some senses you could see some of the old tensions that are still there, some of the things that have never been resolved. It was all there. It was very raw. And and by the end of it, you know, I mean, there's, there's still so many demons, especially on Doc's side. You know, I, I saw him fidgeting and looking uneasy and uncomfortable. He doesn't look well physically. And I was left with a tremendous sadness about where he's gone in his life and what's ahead for him. You know, by the end, I was, you know, I was really choked up. It was a really powerful portrayal of these two great, great superstars. And I think I tried very hard to, to portray that and convey that. These guys were can't miss. I mean, these like, you know, generational superstars. You know, you're, we throw that term around so much, superstars, bound for Cooperstown. I mean, we hear it all the time. And it's 99% of the time just hype. But goodness, Strawberry really were. And that 86 team really was an historic team. Like, you know, as as 
as iconic as the '86 Yan- as the '27 Yankees. Not as good, but as as as, as meaningful and as uh, I should say, a team that te- that the fans could really attach themselves to in a similar way. So, I guess the long answer is to see those two now and where they are in their lives really moved me, and I really was choked up at the end, particularly about Doc. What I what I found interesting, I mean, we know from the press clippings how bad things got for both of them, especially as they got towards the later part of their career. But it seemed like they had issues right off the bat uh, in the minor leagues, uh, rookie year, second year. Uh, as someone recovering the team, I know you, you don't follow them to the off-the-field stuff, but even back then before social media, I think it would be hard to hide some of these things that were going on. I mean, as a reporter, did you realize off the bat how troubled these two guys were and how many things they had going on. Well, Mike, I did. I mean, I was part of it myself. I was 25 years old. I was out through it, right? I mean, I was a single reporter. I was the same age as the players. I mean, I a lot of what was happening, not all of it, but a lot of it was happening. I, was, I either saw for myself or I was, you know, on the periphery of and or heard secondhand. But you have to, you have to understand that against the backdrop of what was happening culturally in this country and particularly in New York City in the mid-80s, early to mid-80s. I mean, everybody was partying. I mean, it's an entirely different world than what exists now. There was no, everybody was doing everything to excess, you know, making money, spending money, drinking, doing coke, having sex with strangers. It was just a different universe. So what Gooden and Strawberry were experiencing and what they were doing was not that unusual given what everyone else was doing and given what their teammates were doing. They were just going with the flow. So, I mean, they were awfully young, and they were very vulnerable, but it's not like they stood out all that much, and that's the tragedy of it. Looking from an outsider's point of view, my, my perception of, of how they were covered, I'll use the word covered, is that Doc always seemed like a shy, good guy, got along with the got involved with the wrong crowd. Daryl was the lightning rod, kind of like A-Rod, kind of like you know what you see maybe a little bit with Matt Harvey, but more so like A-Rod. Do you feel those guys were covered differently or portrayed differently in any way during that period? Differently than the teammates or differently from each other, you mean? From each other. I'm sorry, from each other, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we we, we protected Doc because, I mean, you could just tell he was this really shy and awkward kid. You know, he came from a very sheltered background and was really overwhelmed socially. I mean, I even think just uh, being interviewed made Doc uncomfortable you know he just really wanted to pitch which obviously he was great at and that's where his true self came out he just he could he could that sort of that warrior ethos that real fierce competitor only manifested itself on the mound otherwise he just wanted to be left alone to play video games the clubhouse kids i mean he had very little social polish whereas daryl was you know this loud you know ego-driven braggart you know, funny, you know, and edgy and, you know, larger than life I mean, with the big booming voice and the cutting humor. I mean, he was, you know, there was so much more to Daryl's personality, good and bad. Than Doc. Doc would just prefer to have been left alone and ignored. That would have made him happy if nobody talked to him when he wasn't pitching so he could just do his thing. So we gravitated towards Daryl because he was news. I mean, you had to stand around his locker. And wait for him to say something. That was just part of your assignment. If you were a beat guy back in the day, wait for Daryl to go off on something or someone. Whereas Doc just didn't have that much to say. You know, he was 
Uh, as I said, he was awkward with his responses, unsure uh, of his opinions. And it was really the best thing to do was to get him on the days he pitched to talk about how he pitched. Otherwise, we invested most of our time with Daryl. When you look back, it's easy to have revisionist history. And look, Lonnie Dykes has been doing a lot of that lately. But, I mean, the Mets brought in a psychologist. I think it was Dr. Alan Lenz. I mean, they tried everything with those guys. But was there anything they could do? Could they have maybe brought them up a little bit later? Um, was it a situation where no matter what, the time, as you said earlier, the city, the team, it was a perfect storm where no matter what you did to take care of these two guys, they inevitably were going to go down this path? I, you know, that's a, that's a, that tremendous question, really, because I've asked myself that. What could you have done? What could the Mets have done in 1984, 83, 85 to prevent this? And I honestly don't know. I mean, your team captain, Keith Hernandez, had a cocaine problem. I mean, the smartest guy on the team, Ron Darling, Ivy educated, was a heavy beer drinker. I mean, everybody was doing something. The manager stocked vodka in his refrigerator. So how are you going to insulate your two best players, you know, the two lightning rods that you said, uh, from that lifestyle, from those, from those temptations in New York City? Single guys, tons of girls want to meet them in every city, wherever they went. You know, you have a, a, a Daryl, a guy like Daryl, with no real father figure, just sort of out there, aimless, just doing whatever he wanted. No authority figure to really tell him, hey, Daryl, think about your future. Think about what you're doing. There was nobody to do that. And you have the other player, Doc, who has probably been born with an addictive gene, uh, an addictive gene that would have led him down the path to addiction no matter what. He inherited from his father, as, as Doc said in the documentary. His father was an alcoholic. It was already predestined for Doc to suffer through that same disease. So honestly, 30 years ago, I don't know if the mechanism was in place. I don't know if the culture would have could have saved them. I just don't see any other path to them. Unless, as you say, they kept them in the minor leagues for another two seasons. But you know what? The drinking and drugging probably would have gotten them in, in, in Jacksonville. I'm sorry, Jackson, Mississippi, a double A, or Tidewater, a triple A, or wherever they went, something bad would have followed. I have with me Bob Clapish of the record, uh, covered the Mets back in the 80s, as part of the 30 for 30 documentary about Dallas Strawberry and Dwight Gooden. Uh, one thing I took away, I don't know if um, you picked up on it, but I saw when uh, Keith Hernandez was talking about uh, Doc being a little on edge on the team bus, and Keith as a as a drug uh, recovering drug addict, uh, cocaine user, uh, I guess he kind of knew what was happening. And I, I sense a little regret that maybe I could have went to management, and it goes back to, you know, you had guys who were clean on that team. It wasn't a team just of 25 uh, drug addicts or, 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 you know, substance abusers. And you had Hernandez, you had Knight, you had Carter. Um, you know, you pointed out some of the good guys uh, as well in a column, uh, you know, about a month ago when they celebrated the 86 team. They brought McReynolds in. I guess that was part of what they tried to do to bring some different characters in that club. That didn't work out, but... What about the leadership of that team? Was there anything to keep those guys at least in the clubhouse? Because they sometimes, like Daryl, didn't play hard. Um, it didn't seem like that team came prepared every day. And, and that, to me, the off-the-field stuff is certainly a big part of it, but that, to me, is what, what demise that team and why they didn't win. They didn't always seem focused, at least from an outsider's point of view. No, I mean, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, that's the reason why they won only one championship, because they didn't take it seriously. <clears throat> they thought they could win on, the, on on their sheer talent, which was true in 86. But, you know, after a while, you realize that the rest of the league is looking for you, is gunning for you. You have to play hard. You have to give more of an effort than that if you want to be a dynasty. And that's how the Mets really saw themselves as a potential dynasty. 
and it didn't work out. I mean, if we look at the body of work between 85 and 89, as exciting as they were, as newsworthy as they were, as crazy as they were, as talented as they were, you would have to say that Met era was a failure. Or at least it was a bitter disappointment having won only one championship with the kind of skill they had and talent that they had. So, you know, who's to blame? I mean, all of them across the board. Management and ownership knew but didn't want to know about what was going on in the clubhouse. The manager himself knew, but he himself was part of that lifestyle. The the team captains, Gary Carter was marginalized because he was religious, faithful to his wife, and just didn't go out at night, so nobody paid attention to him when the games were over. And Keith, you know, the one person perhaps who could have policed them, I'm talking about Doc and Darrell, he's guilty of the same stuff. I mean, he had his own cocaine problem. It would have been, he thinks, and to a degree he's right, it would have been hypocritical for him to blow the whistle on Doc and Darrell when he was caught up in the, in the same madness. So I think he, he regrets it now as a man in his 60s, knowing he could have saved these guys or at least done something to prolong their careers or prolong their greatness. But at the time, you know, Keith was a wild man too. I mean, he was in no position to say stop because all Doc and Darrell would have had to do is say, hey, what are you doing then? Why aren't you doing something about yourself? And it would have been a valid point. Hey, last question before I let you go. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the stories, and I actually had a – it was a podcast out recently where Ryan Thompson was talking about his experience with the Mets, and that's obviously after, you know, Doc and Darrell and everything, but some of the craziness that went on, we mentioned it with Benia and you, you know, at the end of that in the early 90s. I mean, you, you go into locker rooms now. It, it's got to be like a, a, a different universe. If you take the 1986-87 Bob Clappish and introduce him to you today in the same job, go, you know, you're not a beat writer, but going into a locker room. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I've only been in the locker room a little bit, and that's recently. And i got to tell you, waiting for these guys to talk, it's like watching paint dry. I could do a lot of better things out there. I have a conversation with you right now. Um, different world, uh, i got to think, just listening to you talk. It's it's so different. I mean, I we could talk for an hour about the change, not just in the way the game is played and the way the game is consumed, you know, electronically and digitally, but the way the, way the game is covered and who is actually playing this game compared to 20, 30 years ago. Look, all the all the extreme cases, the extreme personalities, one way or the other, really interesting good guys and the really, really bad guys, they're gone. They have been distilled out of baseball. Uh, what you have now is everyone is sort of in the middle, sort of an average, nice, pleasant, polite, but ultimately very dull uh, template. And that's definitely by design. It's not a coincidence. Players are being drilled and coached and tutored from the moment they're signed how to speak, how to act, how to look, and certainly what responses to give when the press comes around. They have, they have seminars now and coaching sessions and mock interviews that they do from the time they're in rookie ball all the way to the, the moment that they're called up to the big league. So when that first microphone is thrust in their face or the Klieg light goes on or a reporter like me is standing there with a notebook in front of them, they know what to say. They know not what to say. And it's just all rehearsed. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different industry. It's a different sport. It's a different journalism now covering baseball as opposed to 1985. It's far less interesting. Uh, I mean, the athletic, athleticism is great. These players are better than they ever were, you know, in terms of watching the sport. It's more exciting now. The guys throw harder. They hit the ball farther, they, they jump higher, they run faster. Everything you would want, aesthetically, they can provide. 
but in terms of interesting personalities and the way the game is written about, it's much, much more dull. I mean, you see so many writers now rely on statistics, sabermetrics, and that passes for baseball writing now, whereas back in the day when I first started, you know, I would have laughed at that kind of coverage because it used to be personality-driven. The news was generated by the players themselves in the clubhouse, from the clubhouse, and that couldn't be farther from the truth today. You know, uh, I'm going to let you go, but I would, would, would ask you one last thing. Uh, last year at this time, I talked to you, and you had pointed out how you thought the Nationals were dead and they were done, and you were right. You were on the money. You know, the second half, the Mets are in Philadelphia. Uh, they've got some injury issues. Um, they've played, even when they've been healthy, they've played inconsistent. Where do you see the, the Mets going this year? Um, I feel this is more of a team that's going to be a wild card team. I think the Nationals are, are headed in the right direction. They look tough. They're starting to play. Uh, better as as the weeks go on. Um, what do you think? What do you see going forward here in the second half? Uh, you know, I, I'm 100% agreement with you. I think the Mets still have enough talent to get to the wild card. And after that, you know, I don't know. I don't like their chances. Nothing is impossible, of course, but I don't like them, their chances of getting all the way to the league championship series. It's just not their year. And I had a, I've had a weird vibe about them since spring training. This is before the run of injuries. It just feels a lot like the 87 Mets that, you know, just something is wrong. Something, either one injury too many or they've just come into the season thinking it was too easy and they're paying a price for that. And ultimately, the Nationals are a much better, tougher team. They're not afraid of the Mets. They have a much more dynamic and charismatic manager in Dusty Baker. Uh, and that counts for a lot. I think down the stretch, the Nationals are not going to fold because they have a leader in that clubhouse who will not let them fold, who's not afraid whereas Matt Williams was a year ago. I think, I think obviously, Daniel Murphy is a big part of it, but I think Dusty Baker, as a leader of his team, as a leader of men, is the difference maker in the East. So I see the Mets getting in as a playoff team, but not going very deep into October. It's just not their year. All right. Well, you go ice your arm. I expect another seven innings when you play those guys again. All right, <laughs> okay, man. You got All it. All right. You have a great weekend. Thanks a lot, Bob. Get us your time. Let's do this uh, again. All righty? Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Right. And that's Bob Clappish. You can check out Bob on Twitter, at Bob Clapp, uh, the record, foxsports.com. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. Like I promised, uh, Wally Backman. You can hear Jim Mojo Morrison's interview with Wally Backman at the uh, AAA All-Star Game down in Charlotte. Uh, Jim will join me. He does uh, game day coverage for the Charlotte Knights. And we have a chance to catch up with Wally and, and see some of the uh, members of the Mets organization that played for the International League, uh, excuse me, for the uh, Pacific Coast League. Uh, in the uh, the AAA All-Star game. So, more Talking Mets. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be right back. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now that's Mets m-e-r-i-z-e-d online.com and get mesmerized today
from BB&T Ballpark in Uptown Charlotte, North Carolina. Jim Mojo Morrison talking Mets at the 29th Annual Sonic Automotive AAA All-Star Game presented by Gildan. Joining me now is the skipper of the Mets AAA affiliate, the Las Vegas 51's Wally Backman, who is the manager of the Pacific Coast League in this year's AAA All-Star Game. And Wally, great to see you back on the East Coast, and congratulations on being named the skipper of the Pacific Coast League. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Well, you bring three players from Las Vegas into this game, three guys that a lot of Met fans in New York are interested to know about. Let's start off with the pitcher, Gabriel Yanoa, uh, 23-year-old right-hander with nine wins coming in. Uh, with Matt Harvey being injured, uh, is he an, a prospect to go up and pitch for the Mets second half of the season? You know, I, I think there's definitely a possibility, you know, depending on what Sandy and those guys decide that they want to do. Uh, you know, Gabriel would be an interesting guy to go up there and see how he would how 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 he would fare. The other guys, you have two position players, uh, one an infielder, T.J. Rivera, having a great year with the bat. Uh, David Wright out at third base. He plays third base. Is there an opportunity for him, perhaps uh, later in the season, to go up and help the Mets with his bat? Well, you know, I, I would think so. You know, you, you, it really depends on the injuries and things like that. You know, but T.J. has done a wonderful job for me at third base. Uh, he came back, had a little bit of a sore hamstring, but this kid has hit 300 everywhere he's played. Uh, when he's given the opportunity or when he gets that opportunity to go to the big leagues, I think people are going to be happy with what they see. We're talking with Wally Backman here at the AAA All-Star Game uh, on Talking Mets. Uh, Travis Rinon, uh was in the Home Run Derby uh, on Monday, uh, having a good year with the long ball, 30 doubles. Uh, what kind of a bat does he bring if he a- actually gets the call up? Well, if he got a chance, he's got a lot of power. His power is really to right center field. You know, he, he leads the PCL now in doubles. I think he's got 36, 37 doubles. Uh, but he's a guy with big power. You know, he's a corner outfielder. Uh, he, he, he does strike out quite a bit. Uh, but the numbers are very good for him. I think mean, he's drove in 70 runs all the way halfway through the year. So, you know, Travis is a guy that's a big power guy that's a corner outfielder uh, that's a decent outfielder as well. Another guy that Met fans interested in, he's been with the big club, Josh Edgen, uh, left-hander. He's been with you uh, this year. What kind of a season is he having, and could he help the big club down the road? Absolutely. He could definitely help. There's no question. You know, Josh has done a, a great job. Uh, you know, it, it's getting him to his ups and downs. Uh, over the course of a game, uh, the way that he would be used in the big leagues. Um, you know, Josh right now is 90 to 93. He's not 94, 95 like he once was, but he's got the two different breaking balls he throws and a changeup. He's done a nice job there in AAA. You can tell that it's a it's a major league guy that you think is rehabbing, so you can see the difference in him when he's pitching. We're talking baseball, talking Mets with the skipper of the Las Vegas 51s, Wally Backman. Wally, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you the million-dollar question on the mind of all Met fans. Michael Conforto started out, had a great uh, start for the Mets, struggled early in the year, now down with you and seems to have turned the corner. What's going on with Michael Conforto? Well, I think the thing with Michael was he just got he was so pole happy when he was in the big leagues, and, and he got away from his swing. You know, he, he's a guy that stays in the middle of the field, drives the ball into gaps. He's a gap-to-gap guy with some power. Um, but he's not a guy that I don't think is going to hit 30 home runs, and I think that that's what he was trying to become. You know, the talks that we had were, hey, you got to get back. you got to be who you are. And you're going to be that guy that's going to hit 15, 20 home runs and drive in 100 runs and hit 300. That's the type of hitter he is. And, and, and that's what we really worked on the hardest with Michael was trying to get him back to the center of the field. And that's where he's at. The other day he hit a home run over 400 feet to left center. So, you know, that's the swing that I see Michael Conforto having. 
Your thoughts on the first half the Mets have had. I know you get a chance to watch it uh, out there in Las Vegas with the time difference. Uh, it's been a weird year for the Mets, especially with all the injuries. The injuries are always a big factor. I mean, you you know, every team is going to have injuries. But, you know, when you look at that starting rotation that the Mets have and then to lose Harvey, that's a big loss. But they have guys that can fill in up there and, and get the job done. I know that they've talked about Noah and and Steven Matz and stuff, but those guys look like they're ready to finish the season and do everything they can. Jake DeGrom, he's he's a great one too, you know, so they're going to get Wheeler back here shortly, and when Wheeler gets back, they're going to be back up to full strength, but and when you talk about a starting pitching staff, that's about as good as it gets, I think. We're talking with Wally Backman, uh, 1986 world champion. Uh, it's been a while, Wally. I was a kid uh, when you guys won that, watching you guys at the old Shea Stadium. Recently, you had the reunion uh, back in New York. Uh, what were your memories uh, about the weekend? How, how was that? It was fantastic. You know, the way that they put that together for us was an outstanding job. You know, from walking out from center field and the dinner that they gave us. They, they really did it first class, and uh, I think we all appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. As far as this game is, and we are talking with Wally Backman, the manager of the Pacific Coast League. Uh, you've got the International League. Is there a little bit of pride on it? I mean, I know you were a competitive guy. You don't like to lose at anything. How do you handle this uh, International League uh, uh, in the All-Star game? Do you guys go out to win, or do you just want to get everybody in? What do you, what do, you well, do? I want everybody to play, but I'm playing it to win. I mean, I, I did my homework on every one of those guys. I have scouting reports on that whole team over there in the international league so you know our catchers are going to read the scouting reports we'll have a meeting just like we would at the start of any kind of series we were having just to try to get them a little more prepared so they know what we know we got the pitching stuff they they know the velocities all these guys so they're going to have all the information they need to know to play these guys Last one, Rowley. Uh, Brandon Nimmo went up to the Mets recently, and a little story that you kind of played a trick on him as far as uh, where he was going, how he was traveling. Share that story with the fans in New York on how you sent Nimmo up to New York. You know, I brought him in my office. It was kind of funny because I brought him in my office. I knew he was going up. I made the coaches leave my office, and I just, you know, I talked about how proud I was of him, uh, his work ethic, the way he was doing stuff on the field. And to make a long story short, at the end of the conversation, I said to him that, that, uh, hey, we, we got a full flight, and, and I got an extra plane ticket here, and you're going to have to go through Salt Lake so uh, to get back home. So uh, I gave him that the information for that, and then he walked out in the clubhouse, got in the middle of all the guys, and I said, oh, by the way, I said that, that flight going through Salt Lake goes to Atlanta. So he, just, he, he basically just about started crying. He was very excited. But I like to play jokes on some of those guys, especially the first-year guys, but Brandon's a special kid. Wally, it was always a pleasure. You were one of my favorites uh, on the 86 Mets, and best of luck to you uh, with the Pacific Coast League, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in New York sometime soon. Thank you. That was Wally Backman, the skipper of the Las Vegas 51s, talking Mets here at the uh, Gildan AAA All-Star Game. Hey, Mets fans. How would you like to get all of your favorite Mets merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you have to do is pick your favorite sports team, and in this case it'll be the Mets, and every month you get Mets gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with some amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code TALKINGMETS at checkout for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all the essentials you need. We're back, Talking Mets podcast, 
You just heard from uh, the Las Vegas 51's manager, former member of the Mets, Wally Backman, and uh, Jim Mojo Morrison, who conducted that interview and is contributing this week to the show. He's down in uh, North Carolina. He works in game day operations for the Charlotte Knights. He had a chance to cover the AAA All-Star game where the uh, uh, International League beat the Pacific Coast League 4-2. to And Jim is kind enough. He's in the middle of a billion things down in North Carolina. He does newspaper. He does radio. He does game day operations. I think he's at a ball field somewhere down in North Carolina. He's joining us for a few minutes as we chat about his experience covering the game and uh, meeting up with Wally Backman and uh, also what he saw out of the members of the Mets who contributed to that game. Mojo, Mike Silva, old buddy, old friend here. How you doing? How are you, buddy? It's great to uh, be joining you finally. I mean, you're doing a great job with this show. Uh, you have found your niche, uh, talking Mets baseball. Uh, we here in North Carolina, my boss, Tommy Viola, who uh, is the media relations guy with the Charlotte Knights, Brooklyn guy, diehard Mets fan, and we get our Mets fix listening to your podcast oh, really? uh, in the really? press. Yeah, we do. We, we we sit there and, you know, they, they kind of get on me. They say that you and I have similar takes of negativity towards Terry Collins, and uh, they're more of the positive type of people and uh, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, scenario but we have a lot of fun listening to it you bring on a lot of great uh, baseball guys and you get a lot of insight and uh, just enjoy it and you're doing a great job and keep it up thank you this is what happens you, you wind up doing a podcast like this after you failed at every other radio project that you've been on you know what I'm saying no you have not you have you, you, no Michael you have not failed the people around you failed you that, that <laughs> might be true but I got to take accountability too but anyway let's get to it so Mets had uh, Travis Tyrone, uh, uh, Gabriel Noah, and uh, T.J. Rivera, correct, that were at the All-Star game uh, this past week? Yes, they had the most in the Pacific Coast League, and the manager, of course, who you just heard from, Wally Backman, who I got to spend three entertaining days with uh, hanging out. Yes, and they had three uh, representatives. Uh, Tehran was the uh, most valuable player, or top player, as they like to call it. They don't call it most valuable because they pick one from each team at the end of the game. But he hit a two-run homer to put the Pacific Coast League up in the game. And uh, he's got a nice swing, really nice guy uh, you know, to talk with after the game, was very happy uh, – uh, to be there, and he uh, also, you know, played in last year's game in Omaha. So he's a 27-year-old uh, outfielder, can play either of the corners. Has got some pop to him, Mike. Uh, you know, really nice kid, and uh, he's one of those guys that you know, it probably is a fringe player. That if you see him get up to the major leagues, is probably going to be some sort of a bench contributor down the road if he does make it up to the big club. Yeah, kind of a tough team right now. You have Nimmo, who's probably ahead of him on the depth charts. You got Diaz, who's still making money. Out there, of course, you'll probably see Conforto come back soon and things like that. Righty bat, um, you know, some pop. Uh, Rivera and Noah, I mean, these are guys. I mean, Rivera's the guy that a lot of Mets fans are interested in him because when Mike was struggling and then getting hurt, they were like, why can't T.J. Rivera come up and replace him? Now, Reyes is there and Flores is there, so that's probably out the window. But Rivera's a guy that has been in this organization. He hits at every level doesn't seem to get a shot, so he's a typical 4A guy. It's sometimes Mojo, being around minor league baseball, you have 750 players out there. You probably could take 150 to 200 of them and switch them with 150 to 200 guys in the minor leagues, and you wouldn't notice the difference. It's all about opportunity, and I think T.J. Rivera falls into that category. 
You know, it definitely does, Michael. When you ask Wally Backman about him, uh, he's very high on the kid. He tells you that the kid can swing the bat. He could field uh, at the position at third base. Unfortunately, there's a cluster with the Mets now, especially with Reyes. And Wally had a lot to do with that. He said he saw Reyes play in Albuquerque when the Rockies had demoted him and was very high on Reyes and you know made the call up to the big club and basically put the report in that Reyes had something left in the tank and the Mets should uh, take an opportunity uh, to bring him back and, and, and give him his, you know, his last chance, so to speak, uh, at, at playing at the major league level. And, you know, so far it looks like it's been a good move. But R R Rivera, while he thinks that he's an everyday player, if given the opportunity at the big league level, he likes him and he likes Herrera. He thinks those are the two guys on this 51 team that have brought to the major leagues and given the opportunity could succeed on an everyday basis at the major league level. And Gabriel Noah, I was just saying in the open that the Mets – Everyone says the Mets have been injured. But you just brought up Reyes. Reyes and, and Flores at third, at this point in David Wright's career, they're just as good, if not better, and they had a different dimension. James Loney's done a nice job at first base for, uh, you know, he doesn't have the power of Buda, but he subbed in nicely. The Mets have used six starters so far this year. Typically a team, and any pitching coach you talk to, anyone, and Mojo, I know you've talked to more this year than I have, but I've talked to my a number in the past. They're going to tell you that going into the season, they need to prepare for 8 to 10 arms to make a start because that's what you're going to need. The 1998 Yankees, who won the most games, uh, they and the Mariners, I didn't go to the Mariners, but the 1998 Yankees, who had this historic season, used 10 starters. They didn't use five. The Mets have used six. Now, they may need a seventh and an eighth and maybe a ninth and a tenth as the season goes on. Is Gabriel Noah one of those guys? Well, Wally Backman seems to think that he is. Uh, you know, he told me he's a tall, uh, lanky kid, doesn't throw the ball, you know, in the high 90s. He's a low 90s guy who pitches to contact. And like you and I have talked off the air about this. If you look at his numbers, he does have a high, you know, contact rate as he goes up in the uh, levels of baseball. But Wally thinks that he's smart enough to set up hitters. And if you have a good defensive club behind him on the particular days that he's on the mound, that he can get guys out out at the major league level and give you quality innings uh, every fifth day. He's very high on. He's only 23 years old, uh, pitched an inning in the All-Star uh, game. Uh, you know, I like his delivery. It's long, but it, it, it's fluid. Uh, you know, you look at the, the guys that they have down there with Backman and Viola, and it's amazing how they fix guys to send them up to be broken at the major league level, you know, by your two favorite guys, Terry and, and, and Warden. And, you know, it, it's just ironic how you, know, you have to send a guy to your AAA manager to fix them and your AAA pitching coach because your major league manager and your major league pitching coach, you know, they seem to break things. Right, right. You know, it, it's interesting about Noah because I had the same reaction. I think he's doing – he's got probably less than five strikeouts per nine innings. And he, he, he clearly pitches to contact. And as I looked at his minor league numbers as he got towards Vegas, keeping in mind that this is the Pacific Coast League and it's so tough to pitch there – He's a, there's been more contact. So I say to myself, oh, that's a guy that's not going to translate well at the big league level. And then I go to Bobby Ojeda's baseball reference page. And for his career, Bobby Ojeda struck out a little under six batters per nine innings, walked two or three per nine innings. And I'm going to say to myself, Bobby Ojeda was a gamer. Bobby Ojeda was a guy that was integral to the Mets winning uh, the 86 championship. He was a solid starter throughout his tenure with the Mets. I don't want to say Gabriel Noah is Bobby Ojeda, but I'll tell you what, Bobby Ojeda today would not be a starter that anybody would want.
You know, Mike, like minds think alike. That is exactly who I referred Yanoa to when I tried to make the comparison to Wally. I said, he's he, he kind of like a right-handed Bobby Ohita back in the we day when you played. That's a surprise. That's the first time he's hearing me say that. Now, Noah's a righty, not a lefty. Right. And what Wally said is, you know, it does throw harder than Bobby, but, you know, they are similar in their style of where they just know how to get people out. And like you mentioned, the Pacific Coast League, it's not an easy league to get batters out. Balls fly out of there. And he's got a pretty reputable, you know, number of wins. And, you know, statistically, he's a pretty solid pitcher. He's nine and three in the Pacific Coast League without striking out a lot of guys. I mean, I, I was told five years ago by Wally Backman that Familia was going to be a stud at the major league level, and look where, what he's developed into when he's given the opportunity. He told me that Matz was going to be a, a legit pitcher. He told me Syndergaard. He anybody that Wally Backman has told me that he thought was going to make it and make it big so far has panned out or is on the verge of, of panning out. So I kind of trust what he has to say when it comes to evaluating uh, talent. And he seems to think that if they gave this kid, you know, Gil Martin's another guy that he thought would help them at the big league level if they need somebody to eat up innings. And he's also very high on Josh Edgen. He thinks that Edgen's ready to come up and be a lefty specialist again and get guys out. He's not throwing as hard as he did uh, prior to going back down there, but he thinks that that's another guy that would be able to help the Mets uh, later on in the season if they need that lefty specialist, even if it comes to, you know, a September call-up, you know, down the road in the in the pennant race. Yeah, especially now they lost Dario Alvarez to the Braves and they brought him off the 40-man. They could use him as a lefty. You never have enough lefties, and the commodity of a lefty in the pitcher, Blevins is having a nice year. He's making $4 million. You may need Edgen next year. That's interesting because Edgen's the guy whose velocity dropped, and I've been looking at him, and I'm like, eh, I don't know. I mean, the velocity's not there. But as a left-handed reliever, you can still get guys out. You don't always need to throw 98. Wally also talked about Conforto during your interview, and it seems like... In his opinion, Conforto got caught up in trying to become uh, the left-handed version of Cespedes. Instead of becoming John Olerud, he wanted to be Dallas Strawberry. Let's throw some names from a blast from the past. I always felt that Conforto, I hate to say Olerud because I know Olerud was a very cheap, but he, when he was on in April, I said he reminded me of Olerud. The line drives the other way, base hits, and if he does hit a home run, it's a line drive, and it's not by accident if it's because he hit the ball hard. It's not because he was swinging for the fences. To me, that's Michael Conforto's game. And from that interview, it sounded like he got away from that. Well, what Wally said, and I asked him, I flat out before we, we did the interview, on Monday we were sitting in the dugout during a rain delay before the home run derby, and I said, Wally, what's the story with Conforto? What's going on? And his exact words to me were, Conforto's fixed. Don't worry about Conforto. We've got it taken care of. And I said, what do you mean? And he didn't pass the blame on anybody in particular. He just said he got away from being Michael Conforto. He sat him down when he got him down there in the office, and he said, Michael, how did you get there? He said, you got there by hitting gap to gap all over the field, going with pitches. He feels that it got in his head, A, that he couldn't hit lefties, and B, that he had to pull everything. And he just got into some nasty habits. Uh, pitchers started to make adjustments on him because he was trying to pull everything, and uh, everything 
just snowballed on the kid, and uh, he just got into some real bad habits. And you know, they had to send him down. But he was six for 14, as you know, when Wally and I spoke on Monday uh, against lefties. He, he's been raking since he's been down there, and he thinks that it's just a matter of time before the Mets bring him back up there because he feels that you know that kid is legit. And other than Cespedes, you know, he's the second best hitter the Mets have. You know, uh, you know, as far as a legit, you know, potential star type of hitter in that lineup. And you know, he's you know he's liked Walker and Loney and and those acquisitions as well. But you know, he thinks that Conforto could be a star someday uh, if he just plays within himself and does what you said, like Olerud, and uses all the field and just kind of worries about hitting for average. The home runs will come. You know, is what he feels with with a guy like Conforto. And breaking news as we're recording this, the Mets have brought Michael Conforto up and optioned Brendan Nimmo down. Alejandro Diaz survived. I mean, ultimately, I think Nimmo. How, 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 how good? How good are these sources that we have here, Mike? You know, and you, I mean, he, I, I said to him on Wednesday before the game, "When do you think Conforto goes up?" And he said to me, "Don't be surprised if I get the call after the game." He said to me, "But I definitely think by next week he'll be back in New York." So here we go. I mean, Sunday no, we're 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 doing this, and he's back, and and that and that's a good move by the Mets. Yeah, and Nimmo, you know, Nimmo's a nice kid. The nice guy yeah. is a backup. He's a he's a he's an energy guy. He gets a couple of hits. So he did what they asked him to do. He sparked them during the Cubs series. But I don't I, right now. I don't see Nimmo as an everyday player. That's it's too soon, maybe. But I I wasn't wowed by Brandon Nimmo when he was up here. And one of the things that he feels Nimmo needs to work on is his defense. He thinks that, you know, at best he's a corner guy. They had him playing center field at the Las Vegas level. He thinks that Nimmo needs to get a little bit better uh, defensively if he's going to succeed on an everyday basis at the major league level. He gave the Mets the shot in the arm that they needed at the time they needed it. Uh, But at that, you know, time that Conforto needed to work out, he was there. He gave him a little bit of energy. But now it's time to bring Conforto back, put him in the lineup every day, um, and and let's go from here. Uh, You know, the Mets had a nice win today against the Phillies, uh, winning two out of three out of the break. And, you know, DeGrom, I think he's ready to make a big move in the second half. That's a guy Wally loves is Jacob DeGrom. He thinks that that kid has just got so much moxie. And uh, he's one of those guys that he just doesn't care. He just goes out there and does his thing. And, you know, as Wally would say, he's the type of guy you want to go in a foxhole with because if you have a game that you need to win, and we saw it in the playoffs last year, you put Jake DeGrom on the mound and he's going to give you everything. You're going to have to pull him off that mound kicking and screaming because that's just the type of competitor Jake DeGrom is, as he says. You know, they're all going to think you and I convened before this, but that was part of my open, which you haven't heard yet, is that at the beginning of the year they said, they had the polls out there, well, which bet starter do you think is going to have the best, best career? And it's so hard for me because they just been they, some of these guys like Matt. He had five starts last year in the regular season. It's basically his first full year. You forget Syndergaard came up late May, early June, and because of what happened in the postseason, everybody's acting like they're ten year veterans. So it was a hard question for me to answer. But this year, what I saw from the Grom is that he had less than his best stuff. Part of it, I think, the preparation of how the team wanted them to prepare going to spring training, put them behind the eight ball when eight ball when the bell rung. The other part of it is the guy had a child, and the child had some health problems. This don't, don't discount how that took a toll on him. He had the lat issue, which could have been related to the preparation. So he had a lot. But even when he was on and he wasn't good, he wasn't getting clobbered. He wasn't Harvey. Uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't out there not competing. He was giving the Mets a chance to win. You saw it specifically in Game 5 against the Dodgers. And to me, right now, if I'm going into that, a decisive wild card game, 
or I want to have a guy that's going to start the first game and the last game of a, of a, of a short series. I think DeGrom's the guy, not Harvey, not Syndergaard, not Mats. Uh, even I know everyone loves Bartolo Colon, but Colon's a guy that's hittable. It's DeGrom, and it's because exactly what you said. That guy knows how to compete and win with less than perfect stuff. Not everything has to be perfect for him to be successful. Yeah, Jacob DeGrom is my number one Met guy. If I I agree with you, Mike, 100%. Uh, he's the guy you're going to put into the uh, foxhole with you. That's the guy, if you have your mortgage on the line uh, and you need to win the game, that's the guy that you're going to put your house on. And that's you know, I feel that way about him. You know, you look at Harvey, and I feel bad because I, I got on Harvey early in the year. I felt like, you know, he was quitting on the match. Obviously, he was injured, and there were things wrong with him as we found out. And, you know, there's a guy we asked, you know, I asked Wally about Harvey, and he, you know, He's a Harvey guy. He had him in Buffalo uh, the year he went up to the major leagues in 2012. And he thinks Harvey's going to be fine and he's going to come back and be better than ever. But when you look at Harvey during adverse conditions, you know, he was looking over his shoulder. He was twitching and fidgeting. Now, maybe that had something to do with the discomfort of being hurt. I don't know. But you look at the ground when things are going bad. He just he doesn't let it bother him. He just gets mad and he goes out there and, and he tries to, you know, get out of it. And that's the type of pitcher that you want in key situations. And I, and I couldn't agree with you, you know, uh, any more on that situation, you know, with DeGrom. He's just that type of a guy. And he's your number one right now going down the stretch. If, if you're looking to, uh, you know, set up rotations against big pitchers, I, I would put DeGrom and then Syndergaard as your second guy. And then Cologne or Matt, you can interchange them because, you know, then the fifth starter is up in the air at this point, uh, what you're going to do. I think you're going to do a lot of mixing and matching uh, with that fifth starter until you finally settle on somebody. And um, I know you got to get back to it. I want to get into one last thing before I let no, you go. Is, you know, but, but, but we have this, this great backdrop of baseball on a baseball show. What, how much better can you get to it? It's really important for the fans to understand. See, I've been critical of the whole Vegas situation. The Pacific Coast League, this is nothing against. I had Russ Langer, the, the play-by-play guy on for the 51s. I'm sure it's fun. I'm going to be in Vegas next month for business. And it's, it's a city that... It's an acquired taste. Like either you're into it or you're not. I think it's an okay city. It's not my cup of tea to go out there. The, the weather sucks, in my opinion, and there's casinos, and that's about it. But th- this is not a knock. It's still a this things to do. And the Vegas 51s have a good product. It's a horrible situation for the Mets. I'd rather them be in Buffalo. I know that the Buffalo situation just went down south for a variety of reasons. We could do a whole show on it. Uh, I know. Yeah, that we could. The Nationals, the Nationals, and Syracuse are are, are tied at the hip. Uh, Rochester's the most logical. I know that there may be some kind of player development contract coming up with the Twins. I don't know if that's even realistic. Eventually, the Mets got to get themselves back east. You're in this beautiful ballpark in downtown Charlotte. I know the White Sox have. I mean, is there a way we could get the Mets to come to? Could you work on getting the Mets into Charlotte? Maybe. I mean, geez. Well, the White it's Sox. The White Sox. The, you no, know, you're you're in a hundred percent right. And, and I did. I talked to Wally about this, and he said to me. It's not ideal, Jim. He said, but it's not the worst thing in the world. He likes it in one way because he could sit there and actually watch the Mets at four o'clock in the afternoon while they, you know before they start doing their work you know on the field, and he could see if guys get hurt or what you know might be going on up in New York. You know if they're playing a seven o'clock game, he likes that aspect of it. But the problem is when you have a guy get hurt and you need to rush a pitcher up for an emergency start or uh, you know you're short a player 
you need that 26th man. It's it's very hard on the guy making that travel up to the East Coast. You know, with the travel out there in the Pacific Coast League, Wally says it's fairly easy going from Vegas to the different cities that they have to go to. But you're right. They want to get back to the International League. Rochester would make the most sense. I know Fred Wilpon is close with the ownership group in Rochester. The thing is that the Twins have been an institution in Rochester, and right now they don't want to give it up. I mean, that's the deal. And you, it would make sense yeah, for Orioles, Minnesota to— The Orioles used to be up there. I Actually, I went to the uh, the old stadium, a Rochester Red Wings game, back in the early 90s with my uh, my parent, my, my, my dad and my brother when they were the Orioles affiliate. Louis, remember Luis Mercedes, big Orioles prospect, was— yeah, late for uh, the, uh, the 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 used to be the Rochester Red Wings, right? I don't know. Are they still the Red Wings? The Rochester, Rochester right? Yes, that's what they are. They're the Rochester Red Wings, and they do play in the Pacific Coast League. And you think about the Twins; they have their Double A team. In, it was in New Britain, Connecticut. Now it's in Hartford. They moved, you know, up eighty four uh, into Hartford uh, and built a new stadium up there. And then they have uh, Rochester as their Triple A team. So they've got to haul their guys, you know, on a pretty decent flight to get them out to Minneapolis uh, if they're going to, you know, make a you know one-day move to bring a guy up or an injury uh, emergency replacement type of deal. So it would make sense for them to swap with the Mets, but, you know, apparently they like it there and they like the situation because minor league baseball in those parts of the country are very well supported. You think about Las Vegas, Mike, you've got a lot more to do in Las Vegas than go to a 51s game. You know, and that's yeah, kind of where – when you, you, you when you're, in, you're when, like you look at like us in Charlotte, you know, I was talking with Billy Ripken. Uh, he was in town doing the game, and he was like, you know, talking about expansion and things. Charlotte sold out 19 times. They're averaging 9,000 and 10,000 seat stadium. And you know why? You know, the, the, they wouldn't be an expansion uh, possibility. And you know, there's a lot to that. And like again, we don't have time to get into it. But the thing when you are in a minor league city, it's the atmosphere, it's the event, it's the fan experience that you sell to the people because you. Can could go on a road trip like the Charlotte Knights are in Pawtucket right now. Tomorrow when I go back to work at the ballpark, I could have seven new guys in the lineup from the Charlotte Knights that I didn't even know about. I can get four guys from Birmingham. Two guys could get p- picked up from another organization. So you really don't become attached sometimes to the players. It's the experience that you become attached to and the development. And, and that's what happens. I mean, you look at minor league baseball, and that's what it's all about. It's the fan experience the, and development for the parent club. The major league team is where it's all about winning and, and actually producing. And that's something that, you know, the Mets lost sight of when it came to losing out you know, with the Buffalo franchise a few years back. And, and I agree with you, Mike. It is a big uh, factor. Wally says it's not that bad, but I think that you know, being in the International League would have been a lot better scenario for them. Yeah, it's just getting the plates back and forth, the whole big thing. Hey, at Jim Mojo Morrison on Twitter. Uh, Mojo, got to wrap up. It's, it would be appropriate for us to do picks or talk Jets and Geno Smith like we used to do in the old Champions Radio ESPN, but we're out of time, and it's a baseball show. Maybe next time you come on, it'll be in September, and we could get in uh, a little segue or a little non-sequitur for the Met Jet fans when the Jets are 0-5 and Geno Smith is their quarterback, all right? We can go down that rabbit hole again and see where it leads. No problem, Mike. Anytime you need me, you've got my number. Uh, if you need anything or, I, I, you know, if guys are coming through Charlotte and you need to, to hear from them, just let me know. I'll be more than happy to reach out and, and get you what you need. Thank you so much, my friend, and uh, great job. Uh, and uh, congratulations. Doing a fine job. Thanks, man. That's uh, Jim Mojo Morrison. At Jim Mojo Morrison on Twitter. Great work. Game day operations for the Charlotte Knights. Covers a bunch of teams down in Charlotte. 
know him from my days on ESPN Radio on Long Island, uh, Champions Radio, uh, a project that we could probably do a two-hour uh, podcast on about why that's not going on right now. There was a uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a Big gone awry if I've ever seen one. But anyway, I digress. Hey, let's take a quick break. Final thoughts right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back. Final thoughts here. Mike Silva, Talking Mets podcast. Of course, uh, for those who want to do the fanessentials.net quiz, here's a kick. You guys haven't sent it yet. You wait for me to tweet it. If you want to get ahead here and win, be the first to tweet at me, as soon as you hear this, go to Twitter, at Mike Silva Media. Who was the pitcher that was the obscure name who threw a one-hitter for Mets that I say earlier in the, in the podcast? He started a game in 1991 against the Montreal Expo. So there's the quiz. I think he had much better success as a member of the Cincinnati Reds, but uh, another situation. By the way, there's a great podcast called Major League Podcast out there, and uh, they had Ryan Thompson on this week. And Ryan Thompson talked about his experience with the Mets, and Thompson's a much different guy after I listened to him on the podcast than I expected, but what a screwed-up team. And you heard a little bit of that from Clappish earlier with Doc and Darrell about how the Mets just were so dysfunctional and got worse after – Doc and Darrell left as you got into the early 90s with Torborg and so on. But listening to a young player like uh, Thompson and how it was such a negative experience, no surprise that guys like Shurik and Kent and Thompson just did not develop with the culture that was uh, at Shea Stadium around the Mets at that time. But anyway, hey, uh, great show. want to wrap up here. Of course, I want to thank Bob Clappish for uh, spending some time on us, at Bob Clapp on Twitter. Of course, I want to thank Jim Mojo Morrison, at Jim Mojo Morrison on Twitter. And I want to thank Wally Backman for spending time with Jim and uh, letting us uh, get a few comments from him from the AAA All-Star game. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Check us out at MetsmerizedOnline.com all the time, at Mike Silva Media on Twitter. I'll see you next week.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.